0: Well, last week, if you were here, uh, you heard Pastor Demo, uh, Pastor David, as he brought us the Word. He talked about um, what it means to glorify God. He kind of gave us the how to glorify God, and he talked about how it's not just uh, enough to know about Kathy's amazing bacon, not bacon, baking, (laughs) although I'm sure she probably cooks up some good bacon, too. But it's not, just enough, not enough to know about Kathy's amazing baking or, or just to talk about it. In order for us to glorify Kathy's baking, we need to take and eat. And I'll tell you, as I was sitting there listening, I was kind of disappointed because I was hoping that Kathy would kind of bust through the doors with two big trays of her little delicious treats. But we need to taste and experience that it's good. And when we delight in it and we become partakers of it, then it's only natural for us to want to tell others, to, to glorify it, to exult in it, to make much of it. That's what it means to glorify, partaking of, delighting in, and sharing it with others. You know, our study in the attributes of God for the Men's Equippers has been so refreshing for my soul, so needed for my soul, because this is what we're doing. We, we're studying the character, the nature, the being of God and that's what I desperately need. I need an ultra HD vision of the glory of God so I can behold it and taste it, delight in it, and go and tell others about it. And while I'm up here, I just want to give my little plug for what we do on Sunday nights at Teen Challenge. Uh, this is what we are trying to accomplish. We're trying to instill in these men who are recovering from addictions. We want to give them a high vision of the glory of God. We want them to experience God. We want them to taste and see that the Lord is good. But here's the problem. The problem is we can never glorify God if we're not seeing Him for who He truly is. We can never glorify God if we are not tasting and seeing. You see, too often I think we fail to glorify God because honestly we're just not enjoying God. When we don't enjoy God, we can't glorify Him. We're not going to glorify God if we don't see Him for who He truly is. Isn't that true of you? Don't you fail to bring God glory because you're just not seeing Him for who He is. Those who are enjoying Him and delighting in Him, they will bring Him glory. And those who don't, if you are not delighting in God, you cannot bring Him glory. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus our attention and our time on the glory of Christ. I want all of our attention to be drawn to our great Christ, not the modern-day Christ. You know the one I'm talking about, the one that people think uh, Jesus is just some sort of great teacher. They they think he's uh, an intriguing miracle worker. He's some sort of inspiring philanthropist. Some think he's a pretty accurate fortune teller. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. For for too many, Jesus is not the theos of the Bible. He's a therapist. Or worse, you've seen the shirts. Jesus is my homeboy. We look at Jesus and we see him with a beard and some sandals and people think, oh, he's, he's like the original hipster. He's the kind of guy that I could take a selfie with. That kind of Jesus is the wrong Jesus. And if you're worshiping that kind of Jesus, that's idolatry, because that's a Jesus of our own making. No, what we really need is the real Jesus. We need to be awakened to the reality that Jesus, He is the almighty, transcendent, glorious God of the universe. There is no one more infinitely great, no one more infinitely beautiful than our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's only when we see him for who he truly is that we can glorify him and enjoy him and become like him. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul puts it this way, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that's our aim this morning. We want to behold the glory of Christ and we want to be transformed by that glory. And I can't think of a better text to do that than the transfiguration of Matthew chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and take out your Bible. Matthew chapter 17. We're going to spend our time looking at the transfiguration. The transfiguration is where the veil over Jesus' humanity is lifted. Peter, James, and John are given a glimpse of the real Jesus, the pre-incarnate God of the universe. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise, And have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Would you join me as we pray and jump into the text? Let's pray. Oh God, may you be so gracious and kind to us as we gather around your word and listen with attentive ears and willing and obedient hearts to hear you, to hear you clearly. May you help us to behold wonderful things from your word. And may we see Christ for who he truly is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our outline for this morning is very simple. Um, The Transfiguration helps us to answer three very important questions. The first is, who is Jesus? The Transfiguration is going to answer that for us. Who is Jesus? The second thing we're going to focus on is, what was Jesus' mission? What did he come to this earth to do? And then finally, we'll wrap it up as we talk about How we are to respond to who he is and what he came to this earth to do. So, question number one Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, he is the king. You see, Matthew's whole aim in his gospel is to answer this very question Who is this Jesus? He arranges all of his material in such a way that you can't walk away without seeing the evidence that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah, he is the king of Israel. Look at verse 1 with me, 17.1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. The passage starts with this reference to time. After six days. Now, you need to know this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't do that very often. They don't get very specific with their time references. But Matthew does here. And the reason he does is because he's connecting what's about to happen with what's already happened. Now, it's normally challenging to do a standalone sermon and just jump right into the middle of a book. So what I want to do is I want to move all the way back to Matthew chapter 1 and kind of do a jet tour so you can see what Matthew is trying to do. Is He's building up evidence for us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's flip in our Bibles and we're just going to move really quickly here. In, Genesis, or in Matthew chapter 1, we're not going all the way back to Genesis. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 1, the Messiah he had to be a Jew. And not just a Jew, but he had to be a Jew with royal blood. And so when we open up to chapter one, what do we see? We see a genealogy that proves that Jesus was a Jew. He's the son of Abraham, but he's also the son of David. He's a Jew with royal blood. Well, the Messiah had to be more than a Jew. So when we get to chapter two, he has to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's what we see in chapter 2. The Old Testament gave some amazing and detailed prophecies regarding the Messiah's birth and his early childhood. So when we read chapter 2, we see that Jesus, he's born in Bethlehem. He's called out of Egypt. He's called a Nazarene. He's fulfilling messianic prophecies. He's fulfilling prophecies from Micah and Hosea and Jeremiah. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Well, we can put all the messianic talk to rest if if Jesus doesn't have a forerunner. So when we open up chapter 3, what do we see? We see Jesus' forerunner. The end of the book of Malachi was very clear that the, the forerunner had to precede the Messiah. And so we're introduced to John the Baptist. And he is the one who's come in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready the way of the Lord. Well, that's good. Matthew has given us some convincing evidence. But you know what? The Messiah, he has to be powerful. He has to be powerful. So what do we see in chapter 4? We see Jesus' power, the Messiah's power over God's enemies. In chapter 4, Jesus proves his supremacy as he defeats Satan in temptation in the wilderness. Well, according to Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, the Messiah was to be the prophet. Moses pointed Israel to a prophet that would speak the very words of God. His words would be authoritative. His words would be divine. And so when we open up chapters 5 through 7, we have the greatest sermon ever preached on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is speaking with his own authority. No one has ever heard anyone speak like this before. He's not just a great teacher and a prophet. He's the greatest teacher. He's the greatest prophet. Well, the Messiah had to be more than a teacher. He had to prove his words by his works. And so when we look at chapters 8 and 9, we see that very thing. In chapters 8 and 9, Matthew records 10 miracles, and Jesus is demonstrating his power his power over sin, his power over sickness, his power over demons and death and disease. He is a powerful Messiah. Well, things take a change once we get to chapter 11. In chapter 11 and 12, we begin to see some opposition. Israel is not embracing the Messiah. And that's precisely why in chapter 13, Jesus starts to speak in parables. Because of Israel's unbelief, the rejection of the kingdom, the rejection of their king. And so Jesus conceals truth by speaking in parables. So that hearing they would not hear and seeing they would not see. In chapters 14 and 15, we begin to see opposition start to mount even more. In chapter 14, the forerunners put to death. And there's this increasing antagonism from the religious leaders. We don't accept Jesus as our Messiah. He is not the one we've been waiting for. It appears that very few are actually embracing Him. And that brings us to chapter 16 and why chapter 16 is so important. Chapter 16, Jesus' public ministry is now over. He takes His disciples on a long and private retreat, just Him and His men, And they go up to Caesarea Philippi. He asks his disciples a very important question there in verse 13. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, what we're hearing is that some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Some saying that you're Elijah. Others are saying Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks them directly in the eye and says, "But who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? Peter correctly identifies Jesus. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And with Peter's confession, he prompts the first four predictions that Jesus gives of his passion and his resurrection. Look at verse 21, chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the high priest and the scribes, and to be killed, and on the third day be raised. See, from this point on, it's going to become clear that yes, Jesus is the Messiah, Peter. You professed that and professed that correctly. And in fact, you, you, you didn't come up with that on your own. The Father made sure you got it right. He is the Messiah. But it's not the Messiah that you imagined, it's a Messiah that's going to have to suffer, a Messiah that's going to have to die. It's the Messiah that we read about in Isaiah 52 and 53. See, the whole point of Matthew's gospel is to help us see that Jesus is the Messiah. But right here in chapter 16, we learn that he is going to do the unthinkable. He's going to have to lay down his life before he has final victory. There must be a cross before there's a crown. So when we get to Matthew 17 and we ask the question, well, why did Matthew or, or why did God put The transfiguration right here. Why this particular point in Jesus' ministry? We know it's because Jesus just rocked the disciples' world. He he just shattered all of their expectations of who the Messiah would be. Every preconceived idea of the Messiah, everything they've been taught since they were young, it's been shaped. A dead Messiah could only mean weakness. A dead Messiah could only mean defeat. But Jesus was about to give them A sneak peek into his true nature to help them, to help them understand what his mission was. Who is this Jesus? He is the Messiah. He's the king, but it gets better. He's also the Shekinah glory. Who led Israel out of Egypt? What's the answer? It's not a trick trick question. Who led Israel out of Egypt? God did. But how did God do that? He did that in the presence of a what? Of a cloud. God led Israel out of the presence of a cloud. That's the Shekinah glory. It's referred to 85 times in the Bible in at least 10 different books. In Exodus 13:21, we read, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The very presence of God was in a cloud. And it's prominent in the book of Exodus as he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and he protects them from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. Later in Exodus, that same cloud comes and rests on Mount Sinai. And that cloud, there's flashes of light, there's fire, there's smoke, and there's a voice that comes out of the cloud. And it absolutely terrifies the children of Israel. So much so that they say, we cannot bear it. Moses, you speak for God. Well, notice when we get to Matthew chapter 17, we see all kinds of similarities. There's another high mountain there in verse 1. Moses appears. Elijah is also there. Elijah's one who also saw the glory of God on that same mountain, as it tells us in 1 Kings 19. The voice of God is heard again in verse 5. But the most significant appearance is that the Shekinah glory is there again. There are lots of similarities between Exodus and Matthew 17, but it's not the things that are the same that are remarkable. It's the glaring difference that stands out. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was in the midst of a cloud. But right here in Matthew chapter 17, it's not in the midst of a cloud. It's in a person. It was concealed in a cloud, but now it's in a person. The fullness of God's glory resides in jesus the messiah look at verse 2 it says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light that that greek verb there metamorphothe, that's where we get the word metamorphosis what does that mean a metamorphosis it's to change on the outside but being consistent with what's on the inside In Matthew's Gospel, we learn that Jesus, He is the Messiah. But for the first time, we see Jesus peel back His humanity. And He gives us a glimpse into His deity. His divine glory shines through His humanity for the very first time. And how does He appear? He's radiant. He's dazzling. He's beaming with light. He's bright and shining like the sun and blazing with glory. Now notice that the light is not shining on Jesus, the light was shining from Jesus. You see the difference? I didn't pay attention in English class, so I didn't really care about prepositions. Now I do. for prepositions are extremely important. The light is shining from Jesus. His garments were bright like his own light. The brightness of his own being literally was emanating through his clothes. When we see these movies about Jesus, we see Jesus wearing the white robe and all of the disciples wearing the dark robes. I, I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus was wearing a dark robe like everybody else. But, but what does the Scripture say? He was shining bright white. It even says in Mark 9, his garments became radiant and intensely white. How much so? As no laundry on earth can bleach them. It's kind of like my, my kids when we play hide and seek. And they run into their room with their flashlights and they get underneath their covers and they've got the flashlight on. So like they're not very good at hiding. But the, the flashlight is coming through the sheets. It's not the sheet that's giving off the light. It's the flashlight. This is exactly what's taking place here. It's not Jesus' clothes that are glowing. It's Jesus. Why? Because that's who he is. He is light. The transfiguration has completely changed my understanding of All of Jesus' light statements in the scriptures, I just kind of assumed that he was speaking figuratively when he says he's the light. You know what he means when he says he's the light? He's the light. That's what he is. He is the light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. But what's even more glorious is that Jesus' light is so powerful and so pervasive that he could actually make other things light. I think that's incredible when you consider all that the Scripture tells us about light. When the Bible says, um, let your light shine before all men so they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, it's not telling us to walk around like a bunch of human glow sticks. No, what it means is, be light as your Father is light. What does that mean? What does light mean? Light is purity, holiness. Light is truth. Light is understanding and wisdom. So when the Bible says to let your light shine, it's saying we need to reflect the same kind of light that Jesus is. He is radiant in his glory. Now, some of you might say, well, this really isn't that big of a deal. I mean, didn't Moses' face glow too? If you remember back in the Exodus when, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the Bible says that he was glowing just as well. But there's a major difference. First, Moses didn't even know he was glowing. He came down the mountain, Oh, Moses, check you out. Whoa, what's going on? I'm glowing. He had no idea. Jesus knew. He knows he's God. He knows he's glowing. He knows he's radiant. But the second thing, this is more important, Moses was merely mirroring God's glory. And so you think about that. You have the moon. My, my daughter says, wow, Dad, look, look at the moon, the, the brightness of the moon. It's It's glowing. Well, that's not giving off light. What's the moon doing? It's reflecting the greater light. The light of the sun. The moon can only reflect it. Moses could only reflect that light. When we talk about Jesus, Jesus is the sun. He emanates that light. It's coming from him. He's the source of light. That's why Hebrews 1.3 can say, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and he is the exact imprint of his very nature. He's the brightness of God's glory. That is why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Second Corinthians says that he is the image of God. Now that word image is the word icon. Um, I'm not taking a call here. But these little apps on our phone, these are icons. And guess what? When I push my Logos app, boop, poof, the whole app pops up. With all its functionality. That's what the Bible's saying. When you press on Jesus, do you know what you get? You get God. You get all of God. He is the exact imprint, the icon of God's nature. Tim Keller, I love what he says. He says, There is no other way to see the glory of God more perfectly in any way that surpasses what we see in Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God. You want to taste the glory of God. You want to delight in the glory of God. You know where you turn? You turn to Jesus Christ. That is the glory of God. Well, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He is the Shekinah glory. But he's also greater than Moses and Elijah. Look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. See, the transfiguration is, um, is meant to leave no doubt in our minds that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. Now, that might seem obvious to us. Why? Because we have both the Old and New Testament. But think about it. For these disciples, for the Jews, for the Pharisees, for the scribes, that's nonsense. Why? Because they held Moses and Elijah in such high esteem. I mean, Moses and Elijah, this is the law and the prophets. It doesn't get better than these two men. These are the big daddies of the Old Testament. They represented Judaism. Moses embodied the Torah. Elijah was the prophet of prophets. I mean, these two godly men are... Larger than life. But their life mission was just to point people to God's glory. And here they are with Jesus on the mountain. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're pointing to Jesus. He is God's glory. He doesn't point to it. He is it. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the completion of all that Moses and Elijah came to do. Listen to this. There is no value in Moses And Elijah, if it doesn't find its culmination, its completion in the person and work of Christ. So who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. He is the Shekinah glory. He is greater than Moses. What exactly did he come to do? What was his mission here? The transfiguration gives us a glimpse of that. Look at verse 3. Moses and Elijah were talking with him. Now, wouldn't it be awesome to know what these men we 're talking about we say we 'd like to be a fly on a wall i don 't like that because when there 's no wall here and i don 't want to be a fly, but wouldn 't it be sweet to be a bird perched on a tree listening to this conversation? I mean, the big daddies of the Old Testament and they 're here with Jesus and they 're talking. What are they talking about well it 's unnecessary for us to speculate because it 's actually in Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter nine, verse thirty, it says this. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And what are they talking about? It says they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That term departure there, that's referring to Jesus' death. But more specifically, it literally says they're talking about his exodus. But this is different. Because the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish is much different than Moses' exodus. You see, Moses led Israel out of Egypt. He led one nation out of bondage. And he led them to a temporary promised land. But we know that Israel went back into bondage. They went back into bondage in Assyria and then Babylon. But Jesus, his exodus, is for all people groups of all time. His exodus bring people not into a temporary promised land, but an eternal promised land. The liberation that Jesus provides is not just from a man, from Pharaoh, or from a nation, from Egypt. No, the liberation that Jesus gives us is from sin and death for all of eternity. That's the kind of liberation that Jesus provides. And I think this is part of the reason why Moses and Elijah are there. I think they're there on the mountain to prepare Jesus for the agonizing death that he's about to accomplish at that cross in Jerusalem and for what that death will accomplish. Maybe they're reminding him of how he's the fulfillment of all that Moses wrote about. Maybe Elijah is there reminding him that this is what all the prophets prophesied about. Jesus, you were born for this. This is why you've come into the world, to put an end to the curse of the law, to be the fulfillment of all prophecy. This is a monumentous event. The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, coming down from heaven to affirm Jesus on his mission. Well, Peter, James, and John, they needed this, and they needed this desperately. I think it was necessary for them to see Jesus' glory. They needed a preview of what was to come. Why? Because remember, Jesus just dropped some heavy-duty news on them. He said he was going to die. And he said If you want to follow after me, you have to take up your cross and you have to die as well. These guys are depressed. They're confused. They're scratching in their heads. It just doesn't make sense. A a Messiah that has to die, how how can that be? But Jesus needs to get this point across that he must go to the cross. He must die for the sins of the world. Suffering was the only way that Jesus would be able to accomplish this task that God had sent him to, to do. There would be no other salvation other than by God's plan through this new and greater Exodus. And what Jesus wanted to do is he wanted to show his men, fellas, it's going to be all right. Look at my glory. See what's going to happen. See, get a preview, get a glimpse of the glory that's to come. When we get glimpses of glory, that puts us in a position where we can endure just about anything. It hasn't been long, um, I got here and right away I'm hearing from our congregation that there's, there's tragedy, there's sickness, there's, there's death, there's issues in the family, relationships, marriage, children. There's a lot of hurting people in our church. This is exactly what we need, glimpses of glory, reminders that whatever difficulty we're going through right now, there's glory to come. And Jesus wants to help his apostles understand that so it would sustain them, so it would help them stay on mission, help them stay on task, help them be willing to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. Well, we know that Peter, James, and John, they're, they're part of the inner three, and they're the ones that are closest to him and have the special privileges of being at Jesus at very crucial points of his ministry. One of them is here, the Transfiguration. Do you know the other two? Where are Peter, James, and John with Jesus? They're there at the raising of Jairus' daughter, and they're there with him at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what do those three things have in common? Anyone know? Starts with a D, ends with an F. Death. There it is. Death. From the get go, Jesus is showing his apostles that he has the power over death, that death cannot hold him, that death cannot contain him. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, he said, Jesus was teaching these three men that he is the ultimate victor over death. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He surrendered to death at the garden. And right here at the transfiguration, he taught these men that he would be glorified in, through, and after his death. See, the disciples needed the transfiguration because although Peter had just testified that Jesus is the Christ, they didn't understand that this Christ would have to give up his life. They didn't understand that he would have to suffer. They didn't understand that they would have to suffer. And in order for them to proclaim the good news, they had to understand why it was good news. Because no matter what we go through in this life, there is glory to come. Now look at verse 4. Peter said this to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Most people, they they give Peter a hard time. And to to be quite honest with you, I'm kind of um, annoyed with people giving Peter such a hard time, partly because I know I would have been saying the same stupid things, sticking my size 13 foot in my own mouth. Um, Yes, Peter was a little careless with, with what he said, but he didn't say, hey, Lord, let's make six tabernacles one for you, Moses and Elijah, one for me and Peter and James. I'm sorry, James and John. No, the Scriptures tell us that Peter, he just didn't know what he was talking about. He was terrified. Uh, We also learned that he was actually taking a nap. He was taking a depression nap because he was so distraught over what the Lord had just told him. You see, I think Peter, when he makes this suggestion, he wants to stay on the mountain. He, He wants to party. Why? Because, well, Jesus just showed him his glory. I mean, when you have... This spiritual high, Moses and Elijah and Jesus in his glorified state, that can only mean one thing. That means the kingdom is here. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what you've been teaching about. It's finally here. See, his words were careless, but they weren't meaningless. His offer to build three tabernacles, it actually makes sense. Because when you have a Jesus that's glorified and you have Moses and Elijah, that means that the kingdom has been ushered in. When you get a chance, read Zechariah 14. When the Messiah would come, there would be a perpetual feast of tabernacles, which celebrated God tabernacling, dwelling with his people. So Peter's saying, here it is. It's finally here. This is the greatest thing that could ever happen to me. God is going to return to his people. He's going to dwell with his people, and the kingdom will be set up. So let's get you set up, Jesus. Let's let the Davidic reign begin here and now. But that wasn't God's plan for the first advent. He was going to have to suffer. Peter wasn't thinking crucifixion. He was thinking coronation. But his, his mind had to be transformed. The reality of what Christ came to do this first time around needed to be adjusted. Because again, there is no crown without a cross. The Messiah must suffer and die. And they should have known this because we have Isaiah 53, don't we? The suffering servant. The Messiah would have to die Otherwise, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 15. While Peter is making this suggestion, it says in verse 5, sorry, 17, 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew tells us that this voice came and just kind of stopped Peter midstream from his babbling. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This declaration, it echoes two very important passages in the Old Testament. The first is in Psalm chapter 2, when the psalmist writes, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it also echoes Isaiah 42.1. We read there, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. See, these two verses are very instructive. They tell us that the Messiah is the Son of God. But they also tell us that he is the suffering servant, that this is his role. This is what he has come to do. And we have almost verbatim what was, what was said at the baptism in chapter 3 of Matthew. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But there's a big difference between chapter 3 and chapter 17, and that's this. It says, listen to him. Listen to him. Why does God add listen to him here? I think it means listen to him in general. Listen to everything that Jesus says. But I think more specifically, what God is communicating, listen to what he just said about having to suffer and die. And not only that, look, look down, chapter 17, verse 12. You're going to make your way down the mountain. Jesus is going to reveal some more truth to you. Listen to this. Jesus says, verse 12, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer At their hands. Look, I know he just told you that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, but he's also going to be resurrected from the dead. Listen to him, trust him, obey him. That command to listen to Jesus took on a whole new meaning for me when I opened up the Fox's Book of Martyrs and I read this story of William Hunter. Any of you familiar with William Hunter? High schoolers? William Hunter. 19 years old. William Hunter was burned at the stake on March 26th, 1555. You know what his crime was? He was reading his Bible. That's it. He's reading his Bible. The Bishop of Brentwood Chapel caught him reading his Bible all by himself. And instead of encouraging him and commending him, he rebuked him sharply. He asked him to publicly recant of his sin Of reading the Bible. William, he couldn't do it. So they tried him, they found him guilty, and they sentenced him to death. This was during the reign of Bloody Mary. You guys know that Bloody Mary was bent on, she was consumed with prosecuting, persecuting Christians. Anyone who was reading their Bible without the help of a priest should be damned. And so they take William. They tie him to the stake, and then they give him one last opportunity to recant. And so this is what William says. He looks out into the crowd and says, I'd rather be true to the Lord than have life itself. And his father, a farmer, he stepped out from the crowd and said, Be strong, my son. William Hunter, at the age of 19, was martyred because he loved God's word. He loved the truth of God's word. He loved his Bible. The words of God were more precious to him than life itself. Look, we won't want to live for God, let alone give our lives for God, if we don't value who God has revealed Jesus to be in his holy word. He is not a dead Messiah, his glory was not extinguished at the cross, but he forever lives. And he welcomes all those who are willing to live and lay down their life for him. Peter, James, and John, they all lived and died for Christ. <clears throat> you ask, well, what motivated these guys? How, how were they able to do what they did? How were they able to have such an impact? How were they able to live for Christ? Well, I think Peter says it best in Second Peter 1, 16-19. Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice that came to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, we heard this voice that came from heaven, for we were with Him on that holy mountain. And look at this, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word made full, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were all eyewitnesses of this miraculous event, the transfiguration, Jesus peeling back his humanity to see his pre-incarnate glory. But you know what? They just weren't eyewitnesses. You know what else they were? They were earwitnesses. They heard the voice come from God. We don't need miraculous mountaintop experiences to faithfully live for Jesus Christ. We simply need to listen to Him and do what He says. The experience that Peter and the others had on the, on the mountain, that just fortified their faith, strengthened their resolve. The important thing is not seeing wonderful things. It's not about having miraculous, remarkable experiences. It's about just listening to God's word and obeying it, hearing it and heeding it. Romans ten seventeen says this, faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You might not be burned at the stake, but you might. The time that we're living in now, there's no guarantee. There are people all across our world, even today, that are being martyred, that are, they're having their lives taken because they love the word of God. People are losing their jobs because they love the Word of God. Who do you find yourself listening to? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the politicians? To, to ESPN? Is it movies and media, social networking? Are you hearing a voice that is just drowning out the voice of God? I think what the Lord wants us to understand this morning is that we need to listen to Him. We need to behold Jesus and all of His glory and listen to Him. The less we hear of God, the more we give into to sin. And I think the Lord wants us to say, or hear, listen to Him. Listen to Him. Well, how should we respond? Look, look at this. I love this in verse 6. How do we respond to Jesus? That He is the Messiah, that He is the Shekinah glory, that He's greater than Moses and Elijah. How do we respond? Verse 6, When the disciples heard this, what they do? They fell on their faces and were terrified. Notice how the demeanor of the disciples changed immediately. Peter went from making all these lofty suggestions to falling on his face in fear because he was terrified. Why? Well, they thought they were going to die. That's what happens when you come face to face with a holy God. That's what happens when you encounter the glory of our great God. If you get God unveiled in his glory, you die. Think about that. Why did Moses have to be hidden in the cleft of a rock? Why did God only show the back of him? Because he said, if you see me, Moses, and all that I am, you're going to be absolutely incinerated. And so the same is here with the disciples. The reason there was a curtain in the tabernacle, and later on a curtain in the temple, was to separate the holy place from the most holy place. You enter into the most holy place, on your own terms, you die. That is how majestic and powerful God is. No one can see the face of God and live. You see, the glory of Christ, when we behold Him for who He truly is, it should absolutely terrify us. He is not a God of our own making. We say Jesus meek and mild, that is true, but Jesus is a glorious, transcendent, holy God. And here he is. He's unveiling his very nature so they could see for themselves. This is the only response. You duck or you die. Do you remember when Jesus, he calmed the storm? The disciples were terrified. What were they terrified of? Not the storm. They were terrified of the God who has the power to calm the storm. When we look at the Old Testament, we see trepidation is the proper reaction to God and his glory. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Peter, James, John, all of them are part of the hall of fame of falling on your face before a holy and transcendent God. When we encounter the presence of a holy God, that is the natural response. We sink low as possible and we say with Isaiah, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I cannot stand in your presence. But watch this. Look at verse 7. Jesus came... And what did he do? He touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. Moses and Elijah no longer there. All the attention was focused firmly on Jesus. All that God said in Moses and the prophets, it culminates right here in Jesus, standing alone with no equal. Why? Because Jesus is the highest. He is the clearest. He is the most powerful revelation of God. Why? Because He is God. When we look at Jesus, brothers and sisters, when we look at Jesus, we see God as visibly as we can while well, here on earth. And while he is so transcendent in his glory, look at what he does. He condescends. He draws near. He comes and tells them, "Do not be afraid." But that's not all. He comforts them with a personal and intimate touch. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to fear God or not fear God? Yes. Fear God. Don't fear God. We're supposed to fear God because he's 100% God, holy and transcendent, different from everything else in the universe. His pure, exalted being the gap between, the big gulf between the creator and the creation is so huge, the proper response is to fall on our face in terror. The Proverbs tell us the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. Godly fear, it helps us recognize who we are. It shows us that the only thing we can do is cry out for mercy. Godly fear leads us to humility, to surrender, to submission. Oh, the reverence of God is still there. But there's no fear of judgment. Fear of judgment is gone. Why? Because when we come to Christ in faith and we embrace Him for who He truly is, he becomes our substitute. He becomes our Savior. He becomes our shelter. And so therefore, there is no need for fear when we embrace Christ by faith. I love what Psalm 34 verse 18 says. The Lord, He draws near to the brokenhearted and He saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 145 verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He is a God of infinite love. Yes, He is holy. Yes, He is radiant in all of His glory. But He left His glory from above and took the form of a bondservant. He left His rightful place in heaven and put aside all of His divine attributes and took on the form of a servant. Why? He was motivated by love. Because He loves you and me. Isn't He a wonderful Savior? He's a wonderful Savior. He is the one that we need to partake of. He's the one that we need to delight in. He's the one that we need to be sharing with others. That is what it means to glorify Christ. And so I want to ask you, are you glorifying the God of the Bible? Are you bowing down low in worship? Are you delighting in Him? Are you telling others about Him?